county jail The prison band was there, they began to wail The band was jumping and the joint began to swing You should have heard the knocked out jailbird sing Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast One man's musings on the works of Stephen King Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King In the chronological order of publication Today, we're going to review 1982's collection of novellas, Different Seasons. Different Seasons collects four novellas, one for each season, and the influence of this publication is undeniable. It's like a magic book, straight out of a Stephen King story. Did King steal the pages from the leaves of a magic tree in a faraway land? Or did he sell something of his to some shadowy figure for the story's successes? Regardless, as I said, um, the enduring legacy of this publication is completely without question. Of the four stories collected, three have been adapted into film, and of those three, two are considered among the most beloved feel-good films of all time. The three films are Apt Pupil, Stand By Me, and The Shawshank Redemption. While I don't have an opinion of the film adaptation of Apt Pupil because I've only seen it once when it first came out, I feel as though it wouldn't be out of line to call Stand By Me, adapted from The Body, the most popularized, poignant movie of the 1980s, and Shawshank having the same distinction for the 90s. I think if they make uh, a Joyland movie, and if it's made with the right filmmaker, I believe that it would round out a thematic trilogy start with the the two movies that I just referenced. For today's podcast episode, I will review one of these stories, the one I'd argue is the most famous of the four, the one with the longest title, fitting for the amount of time that takes place from its beginning to its end, the now-classic story about hope against all odds, a tale about the unfaltering strength of the human spirit, of triumph, and despite its setting, because of its setting, a story very much about freedom. A story entitled Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Before I get into my review, I'll read the Wikipedia summary so I have a basis upon which I can build my review. Andy Dufresne, a banker from Maine, is arrested for the double murder of his wife and her lover. He is sent to Shawshank Prison for life. At the prison, he meets Red, a prisoner who specializes in procuring items from the outside world. As a free man, Andy had been a rock hound, so he asks Red to get him a rock hammer, a tool he uses to shape the rocks he finds in the exercise yard into small sculptures. Of the next items he orders from Red is a large poster of Rita Hayworth. Over the ensuing years, Andy regularly requests more posters from Red, including pinups of Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield. When asked, Andy tells Red that he likes to imagine he can step through the pictures and be with the actresses. One day, Andy and the other prisoners are tarring a roof when Andy overhears a guard complaining about the amount of tax he will have to pay on a sum of money bequeathed to him. Andy approaches the guard and tells him a way that can legally shelter the money from taxation. A gang of predatory prisoners called the Sisters, led by Boggs Diamond, rapes any prisoner they can, and Andy is no exception. However, when Andy makes himself useful to the guards, they protect him from the Sisters. One night, Boggs is found in his cell unconscious and severely beaten. Andy is also allowed to stay alone in his cell instead of having a cellmate like most other prisoners. Andy's work assignment is later shifted from the laundry to the prison's library. The new assignment also allows Andy to spend more time doing financial paperwork for the staff. Andy applies to the Maine State Senate for funding to expand the library. For years, he gets no response to his weekly letters until the Senate finally sends him $200, thinking Andy will stop requesting funds. Instead of ceasing his letter writing, he starts writing twice as often. His diligent work results in a major expansion of the library's collection, and he also helps a number of prisoners earn equivalency diplomas. 
the Warden of Shawshank, Norton, also realizes that a man of Andy's skills is useful. He has started a program called Inside Out, where convicts do work outside of the prison for slave wages. Normal companies outside cannot compete with the cost of Inside Out workers, so they offer Norton bribes not to bid for contracts. This cash has to be laundered somehow, and Andy makes himself useful here as well. One day, Andy hears from another prisoner, Tommy Williams, whose former cellmate had bragged about killing a rich golfer and a lawyer's wife. Andy latches onto the idea that the word lawyer could have easily been mixed up with banker, the professions being similarly viewed by the uneducated public, when framing the lawyer for the crime. Upon hearing Tommy's story, Andy realizes that this evidence could possibly result in a new trial and a chance at freedom. Norton scoffs at the story, however, and as soon as possible he makes sure Tommy is moved to another prison. Andy is too useful to Norton to be allowed to go free. Furthermore, he knows details about Norton's corrupt dealings. Andy eventually resigns himself to the fact that the prospect for his legal vindication has become non-existent. Before he was sentenced to life, Andy managed to sell off his assets and invest the proceeds under a pseudonym. This alias, Peter Stevens, has a driver's license, social security card, and other credentials. The documents required to claim Stevens' assets and assume his identity are in a safe deposit box in a Portland bank. The key to the box is hidden under a rock along a wall lining a hayfield in the small town of Buxton, not far from Shawshank. After 18 years in prison, Andy shares the information with Red, describing exactly how to find the place and how one day Peter Stevens will own a small seaside resort hotel in Zihuatanejo, Mexico. Andy also tells Red that he could use a man who knows how to get things. Red, confused about why Andy has confided this information in him, reflects on Andy's continued ability to surprise. One morning, after he has been incarcerated for nearly 27 years, Andy disappears from his locked cell. After searching the prison grounds and surrounding area without finding any sign of him, the warden looks in Andy's cell and discovers that the current poster pasted to his wall of a young Linda Ronstadt, Raquel Welsh in the film adaptation of the novella, covers a man-sized hole. Andy had once used his rock hammer not just to shape rocks, but to carve a hole through the wall. Once through the wall, he broke into a sewage pipe, crawled through it, emerged into a field beyond the prison's outer perimeter, and vanished. His prison uniform is found two miles away from the outfall. How he made his how he made good his escape with no equipment, clothing, or known accomplices, nobody can determine. A few weeks later, Red gets a blank postcard from a small Texas town near the Mexican border and surmises that Andy could cross the border there. Shortly afterwards, Red is paroled. After nearly 40 years of imprisonment, he finds a transition to life outside a difficult process. On the weekends, he, hitches, he hitchhikes to Buxton, searching for a suitable hayfields from Andy's directions. After several months of wandering around the rural town roads, he finds a field with a rock wall on the correct side with a black rock on it. Under this rock, he finds a letter addressed to him from Peter Stevens, inviting him to join Peter in Mexico. With the letter are $20, $50 bills. The story ends with Red violating his parole to follow Andy to Mexico. So just uh, some general thoughts before we get into the characters. Um, so the, the first thing that, that struck me, having read uh, the Stephen King works up until this point, is that it's in first person. Now, outside of the Sue Snell testimony entries in Carrie, which is taken from transcripts, this is King's first first-person work of a significant length, and much of the success of this story derives from this storytelling choice. In order for this story to work, we need to feel Andy's imprisonment 
his hopes, his fears, and while King manages to do this regularly with his characters in his usual third-person perspective, his ability to make the reader empathetic to his character's struggles here is supercharged. Andy is not locked within the walls of Shawshank by himself. Neither is Red. Each of us are with them, and King is the one who led us willingly to behind the bars like some Pied Piper of penitentiaries. Now, although it does take place in the first person, I did notice uh, a little bit of a cheat here on page 64. And just so you know, I'm reading the paperback plume edition. Uh, I don't know what the what date it's from, um, but uh, it, it's a strange cover. There's just a naked baby on it. Um, I, I don't really get why. Um, you know, I guess different seasons, it's suggesting the different stages of someone's life and here it's focusing on the 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 birth and but i it's just it's a it's a strange strange cover anyway um on page 64 king breaks the first person perspective uh it's still it's still first person it's the story still coming from red but it's it's technically a cheat it's a scene related from Andy to Red and from Red to us, but the scene functions just like a third-person narrative, all of a sudden including dialogue between two characters, uh, Andy and Norton, in a conversation that our narrator was never present for. So that's a glaring error in in the structure of this novella. I understand the necessity because we have to understand the frustration that Andy is feeling because we, we need to in order to feel that, that moment of despair when he realizes basically what's happening here is this is the scene where Andy goes to Norton when he finds out about um, the possibility of, of freedom with uh, the, the fact that his killer is out there and has been identified and he can have a new trial and Norton just, you know, waves it away. And, uh, you know, so we need to be there. Uh, and there's really no... There's no good way for Red to be in that scene because there's no way that Norton would allow Red to be that in a conversation with Andy when Andy is so aware of the the shady dealings with Norton. So King had to convey it to us somehow, so he he conveys it through Red, but Red just changes his storytelling technique and all of a sudden it's not it's not from his perspective anymore. It's he's kind of adopted the the perspective of Andy in that moment. Um and he's not referring to Andy as I, you know, he's still referring to him as Andy, but the level of detail that he's able to describe for a situation that he wasn't there to see um, doesn't really jive with the other scenes where he described events that he wasn't a part of. So it, that to me, that particular scene is, is just an example of, of Stephen King just showing his hand a little bit more than he did for the rest of the novel. So it's the, it's the one thing that seemed out of place in an otherwise perfect um, you know, short story. So I want to talk about the importance of the setting here, because uh, notice that the title isn't Rita Hayworth and the Dufresne Redemption. Andy might be our hero and Red our narrator, but if you want to argue that Shawshank is the star of the story, I'm not going to stop you. King knows this and stresses the importance of realizing the physicality of the prison within the mind of the reader, detailing its layout on pages 26 and 27. It's so important um, because it gives us a sense of geography, because these characters spend so many years of their lives, and the story isn't very long. It's just a, it's over 100 pages, and that's it. But he, he has to be able to, to make this setting work. If it doesn't work, then the story falls apart. So he, he does a great job at, at detailing the, the, the different locations of the, the prison, 
the layout of the prison, and, and that takes place on pages 26 and 27. Now, the important thing that, uh, that King does so, so, so well here, uh, he knows how to add little flourishes to his work. That reminds me of a, a quote from his son, author Joe Hill, who said something along the lines of, My father has forgotten more about the craft of writing than I'll ever learn about it. Such a technique is in his almost effortless ability to tease the reader, to draw them in. On page 31, Red remembers getting the rock hammer for Andy and nonchalantly references the sisters, offering no explanation for them, just letting their existence come about naturally, organically. It's a little spice that makes our literary taste buds come alive, giving an extra flavor to the scene, only later explaining who the sisters are. He lets the question mark of them grow just long enough to let it curl and sharpen its edge, and before you know it, that question mark has turned into a hook, and he's reeling us in. He then describes the sisters in all of their awfulness on page 32. He writes, And then there are the sisters. They are to prison society what the rapist is to the society outside of the walls. They're usually long-timers doing hard bullets for brutal crimes. Their prey is the young, the weak, and the inexperienced, or, as in the case of Andy Dufresne, the weak-looking. Their hunting grounds are the showers, the cramped tunnel-like area behind the industrial washers and the laundry, sometimes the infirmary. On more than one occasion, rape has occurred in the closet-sized projecting booth behind the auditorium. Most often what the sisters take by force they could have had for free if they wanted it that way. Those that could have been turned always seems to have crushes on one sister or another, like teenage girls with their Sinatras, Presleys, or Redfords. But for the sisters, the joy has always been by taking it by force. And I guess it always will be. So with that description, uh, we, we get the, the threat of these characters and, and all of a sudden our, um, the tension increases and our, our sense of worry for, for Andy increases. All because King was able to tease them out. And he continues the tease throughout the rest of the novel. He teases the events of mid-May 1950. He teases Byron Hadley, giving us an incredible description before launching the character at us. So by the time he begins interacting with our characters, King has already created the legend on page 42. Uh, during the scene, it's, it's when they're tarring the roof and Andy overhears. Uh, he's going to overhear um, Byron talking about the, the tax. And, and so this is what King writes. For Byron Hadley, there is no basis of comparison. He could sit there, cool, and at his ease under the warm May sun, to find the gall to mourn his own good luck, while less than ten feet away a bunch of men were working and sweating and burning their hands on great big buckets filled with bubbling tar, men who had to work so hard in their ordinary round of days that this looked like a respite. You may remember the old question, one that's supposed to define your outlook on life when you answer it. For Byron Hadley, the answer would always be half empty. The glass is half empty. Forever and ever, amen. If you gave him a cool drink of apple cider, he'd think about vinegar. If you told him his wife had always been faithful to him, he'd tell you it was because she was so damn ugly. And this goes back to how well King is able to, to create characters. Um, but... Basically, th this particular character is a character that had been referenced a few pages before, had been talked about, Hadley was talked about, Hadley was talked about, and then all of a sudden, boom, we get to the description of Hadley. And it wouldn't be as effective if he hadn't, you know, rolled out that tease. On page 55, he teases the cold draft in Andy's cell. 
you know, which later, you know, becomes the reveal that there's a giant hole in Andy's cell. He teases the idea that something bad had happened to Andy while introducing the new warden, Norton. So rather than getting right to it, he details the corruption of Norton, his use of Andy in the entire time the readers uh, demand to get to the point. And then to punish us further, he introduces the name Tommy Williams, creating a new tease. Who's Tommy Williams? And then King tells you about it. And every time he tells you about it, he pushes away further and further the bad thing that happened to Andy. He teases the escape. Having read tell us that he escaped, tells us how they searched the prison, tells us the protocol when a prisoner goes missing, but he doesn't come right out and tell us that he's missing. Now, these teases uh, aren't, aren't just included to engage the reader. They also serve the narrative as well. We are, in a sense, prisoners of the tale, King the Warden, trapping us within his storytelling, with these teases serving as possibilities that we constantly yearn for, just like a prisoner yearns for the day he is free. So now I want to talk about the characters here. Uh, the first one, of course, being Andy. I'll get right to it. You know, I mean, he just manages to shine as a character through the eyes of our narrator. There's a description of him on page 17. He's someone clearly out of place in a prison. And, Quing, and King quickly establishes from the get-go the difference between Andy and what you expect um, from an inmate. So when Andy came to Shawshank in 1948, he was 30 years old. He was a short, neat little man with sandy hair, sandy hair and small, clever hands. He wore gold-rimmed glass spectacles. His fingernails were always clipped, and they were always clean. That's a funny thing to remember about a man, I suppose, but it seems to sum Andy up for me. He always looked as if he should have been wearing a tie. On the outside, he had been a vice president in the trust department of a large Portland bank. Good work for a man as young as he was, especially when you consider how conservative most banks are. And you have to multiply that conservatism by 10 when you get up into New England, where folks don't like to trust a man with their money unless he's bald, limping, and constantly plucking at his pants to get his truss around straight. Andy was in for murdering his wife and her lover. Um, so that crime that I just mentioned is described in great length. And although the story takes place in the 1940s, the sensationalism of the case rings frighteningly true today. In fact, it has echoes of the smash hit Gone Girl, soon to be a major motion picture directed by David Fincher, starring Batman himself, Ben Affleck. Andy's character traits speak to his logical, rational nature, whether it be the matter-of-fact way in which he testifies, a manner that struck the jury as remorseless, or how he, year after year, procured, then provided a ritualized method of social drinking once behind bars. Andy might be meticulous, he might be rational, and he may appear unemotional, but he isn't without grit, as evidenced by a very dry, wise-ass nature that doesn't do him any favors in the jury, but wins us over nonetheless. Um, and there's a scene that takes place on page 23 that, uh, that gives us this, this particular character trait, Mr. Dufresne, did you then go up to Glenn Quinton's house and kill the two of them? The lawyer thundered. No, I did not, Andy answered. By midnight, he said, he was sobering up. He was also feeling the first signs of a bad hangover. He decided to go home and sleep it off and think about the whole thing in, the more, in a more adult fashion the next day. At the time I drove home, I was beginning to think that the wisest course would be simply let her go to Reno and get her divorce. Thank you, Mr. Dufresne, the DA popped up. You divorced her in the quickest way you could think of, didn't you? You divorced her with a thirty-eight revolver wrapped in dish towels, didn't you? No, sir, I did not, Andy said calmly. 
And then you shot her lover. No, sir. You mean you shot Quentin first? I mean, I didn't shoot either one of them. I drank two quarts of beer and smoked however many cigarettes the police found at the turnout. Then I drove home and went to bed. You told the jury that between August 24th and September 10th, you were feeling suicidal. Yes, sir. Suicidal enough to buy a revolver. Yes. Would it bother you overmuch, Mr. Dufresne, if I told you that you do not seem to me to be the suicidal type? And here's where Andy gets to be a wise ass. No, Andy said. But you don't impress me as being terribly sensitive, and I doubt very much that if I were feeling suicidal, I would take my problem to you. So, I, I just, I, I love that line because it shows his quick wit, um, and it shows that he he's meticulous, but he's not without making mistakes, because that, it doesn't really win him over any favors on the jury, um, even though it, you know, it, it definitely makes us like him a little bit more. The novella might take place within a familiar world, one closer to our own than, I don't know, say Salem's Lot, and especially his most recent at the time, The Dark Tower, but make no mistake, Andy Dufresne, for all of his layers of being the everyman, is really anything but. In fact, he seems to have a superpower of his own, except it's one that isn't as flashy as Kerry White's ability to bring down a good time or Charlie McGee's snowman slaying techniques. No, Andy's might not be as flashy, but his are just as important. Andy's superpower is to survive, even thrive, in prison. He does this with quick wit, a backbone of steel, a keen eye, and an intangible X-factor that I wouldn't be surprised if a character had identified as an ability to shine. Look no further than page 28. During the scene, he's talking to Red. Um, and an old friction-taped baseball flew towards us, and he turned, cat quick, and picked it out of the air. It was a move Frank Malzone would have been proud of. And he flicked the ball back to where it had come from, just a quick and easy-looking flick of the wrist, but that throw had some mustard on it just the same. Um, you know, here we see that his reactions are, are charged up and his cat-like ability suggests an advantage over his fellow inmates. Um, and it's not just a physical cat-like ability. It's just, you know, I mean, cats are, are survivors. Um, and Andy is definitely a survivor. You know, Red even admits to the contribution of constructing the myth of Andy, transforming him from human to, to prison legend on, starting on, on page 39, um, because the, the more we learn about him, the, the less he seems like a real person. You may have gotten the idea that I'm describing someone who's more legend than man. And I would have to agree that there's some truth to that. To us long-timers who knew Andy over space of years, there was an element of fantasy to him. A sense, almost, of myth magic, if you get what I mean. The story I passed on about Andy refusing to give Boggs Diamond a head job as part of that myth, and how he kept on fighting the sisters as part of it, and how he got the library job as part of it too, but with one important difference. I was there, and I saw what happened, and I swear on my mother's name that it's all true. The oath of a convicted murderer may not be worth much, but I believe this. I don't lie. So in short, Andy might look like a small fish, but he's actually a shark. His request for the rock hammer defines the strength of this character. You get a sense that the request is just a quirky trait. The kind of thing that others find so off-putting about him when in fact it illustrates his cunning and his perseverance. He's someone who always seems either in control or, or figuring out a way to be in control. Whether it's waiting out his attackers for the right time for revenge or manipulating situations in his favor. 
Look no further than his manipulations of Hadley, who had come into a sum of money and is afraid that the IRS is, uh, is going to tax him to death. Dufresne immediately inserts himself in the situation, even if it means certain harm, and by the end, he may be in prison, but he's not imprisoned. I've talked to some of the other men who were up there that day. Rennie Martin, Logan St. Pierre, and Paul Bossant were three of them, and we all saw the same thing. We all felt the same thing. Suddenly, it was Andy who had the upper hand. It was Hadley who had the gun on his hip and the billy in his hand. Hadley who had his friend Greg Stamus behind him and the whole prison administration behind Stamus. The whole power of the state behind that. But all in once, in that golden sunshine, it didn't matter. And I felt my heart leap up in my chest as I it had never had since the truck drove me and four others through the gate back in 1938 and I stepped out into the exercise yard. Andy was looking at Hadley with those cold, clear, calm eyes. And it wasn't just the 35000 then. We all agreed on that. I've played it over and over in my mind, and I know. It was man against man, and Andy simply forced him, the way a strong man can force a weaker man's wrist to the table in a game of Indian wrestling. There was no reason, you see, why Hadley couldn't have given Met Mert the nod at that very minute, pitched Andy overside onto his head, and still taken Andy's advice. No reason, but he didn't. So Andy gets uh, Hadley to provide some beers to the boys, and then King writes, That's how, on the second-to-last day on the job, the convict crew that tarred the plate factory roof in 1950 ended up sitting in a row at 10 o'clock on a spring morning drinking black label beer supplied by the hardest screw that ever walked a turn at Shawshank State Prison. That beer was piss warm, but it was still the best I ever had in my life. We sat and drank and felt the sun on our shoulders, and not even the expression of half amusement, half contempt on Hadley's face, as if we were watching apes drink beer instead of men could spoil it. It lasted 20 minutes, that beer break, but for those 20 minutes, we felt like free men. We could have been drinking beer and tarring the roof of one of our own houses. Only Andy didn't drink. I already told you about his drinking habit. He sat hunkered down in the shade, hands dangling between his knees, watching us and smiling a little. It's amazing how many men remember him that way, and amazing how many men were on that work crew when Andy Dufresne faced down Byron Hadley. I thought there were nine or ten of us, but by 1955, there must have been 200 of us, maybe more, if you believed what you had heard. So yeah, you asked me to give you a flat-out answer to the question of whether I'm trying to tell you about a man or a legend that got made up around the man, like a pencil around a piece of grit. I'd have to say that the answer lies somewhere in between. All I know for sure is that Andy Dufresne wasn't much like me or anyone else I ever knew since I came inside. He brought in $500 jammed up his back porch, but somehow that gray meat son of a bitch managed to bring in something else as well. A sense of his own worth, maybe, or a feeling that he would be the winner in the end. Or maybe it was only a sense of freedom, even inside these goddamn gray walls. It was a kind of inner light that he carried around with him. So this not only demonstrates his brilliance, um, you know, what he was able to do with Hadley, um, but it also grows his mythology as evidenced by Red. You know, and King does such a wonderful job through Red depicting, you know, his perseverance, uh, you know, especially in, um, you know, having him uh, taste his freedom for a second before it was brutally, you know, ripped from him. And then, you know, his whole prison escape. Um, all of this just 
creates a character that you know needs to to feel like a very strong and vibrant character that that we need to get behind while we we spend the the years and years and years with him so then i want to talk very very briefly about red um page 28 is when we witness the beginnings of the the red dufresne friendship the dufriendship if you will establishing the lifer's opinion on the newbie and the newbie's possible threat in the form of a bad inmate who speaks to our fears of being unjustly sentenced to prison ourselves and King makes the effort to differentiate Red as much as he does for Andy, making it clear that although he may be in prison for murder, he's still a man of honor. King writes on the growing opinion of Andy Dufresne, I don't have to listen to rumors about a man when I can judge him for myself. You know, and, and that to me speaks of speaks of Red. Uh, th- there's not much more that I, I really want to say about Red, other than the fact that he's just he's a good guy and he's our vehicle for being in Shawshank. Um, it's through his eyes, it's his story that he tells um, but, uh, but, you know, the, the, the focus of the story is, is on Andy. And then we have Norton, you know, Shawshank Penitentiary might be a character in the story, but it's not the bad guy. Shawshank is Shawshank. It exists. It is populated. It serves its function impassively. It's only until Warden Norton is introduced do we meet the true bad guy of the story, a living, breathing embodiment of everything wrong with humanity, the corruption of the system personified. His villainy is cartoonish, but it's always authentic, and the authenticity makes him just as frightening, if not more so, than any clown in a sewer. In short, I call him cartoonish because he's a mustache-twirling black hat, bad because King needed a bad guy, a symbolic wall that Andy needed to break through. The truth of the character is that he's... It's not hard to imagine a man knowingly imprison an innocent man, as he does with Andy. He solely exists to derive pleasure from trying to break Andy um, and Andy's spirit, and basically says as much on, on page 70. So why, Andy repeated, can't you tell me why you did it? You knew I wasn't going to talk about about anything you might have had going, so you knew that. Why? Because people like you make me sick, Norton said deliberately. I like you right where you are, Mr. Dufresne, and as long as I am warden here at Shawshank, you are going to be right here. You see, you used to think that you were better than anyone else. I've gotten a pretty good at seeing that one on a man's face. I marked it on yours the first time I walked into the library. It might as well have been written on your forehead in capital letters. That look is gone now, and I like that just fine. It's not just like you are a useful vessel. Never think that. It's simply that men like you need to learn humility. Why, you used to walk around that exercise yard as if it was a living room, and you were at one of those cocktail parties where the hell where the hell-bound walk around coveting each other's wives and husbands and getting swishingly drunk. But you don't walk around that way anymore, and I'll be watching to see if you should start to walk that way again. Over a period of years, I'll be watching you with great pleasure. Now get the hell out of here. And then Andy says, Okay, but all the extracurricular activities stop now, Norton. The investment counseling, the scams, the free tax advice, it all stops. Get uh, H&R Block to tell you how to declare your income. Warden Norton's face first went brick red, and then all the color fell out of it. You're going back into solitary for that 30 days, bread and water, another black mark. And while you're in it, think about this. If anything that's been going on should stop, the library goes. I will make it my personal business to see that it goes back to what it was before you came here. And I will make your life very hard. Very difficult. You'll do the hardest time you possibly can do. You'll lose that one bunk Hilton down in cell block 5, for starters, and you'll lose those rocks on the windowsill, and you'll lose any protection the guards have given you against the sodomites. You will lose everything. Clear? It was clear enough. 
So his assault on Andy's freedom damages Andy, but it doesn't break him. In fact, with what comes next proves that's always darkest before the dawn. So on page 74, Andy begins filling Red in on his plans after prison, which again speaks to his ingenuity. We know how Andy will get we know how Andy will survive when he gets out of prison. We just don't know how he's gonna get out of prison. But when he gets out of prison, it's that much more triumphant because of the the depiction of Norton, how how awful he is. So now has come time for uh, Stephen Kingisms, uh, which is the uh, the tricks and uh, tropes and traits of Stephen King. Um, there's not many, but there's a, there's definitely a couple. Uh, the first is that Castle Rock is referenced. Castle Rock um, being the the fictional uh, small town that that Stephen King uh, populates his characters in. Um, and stay tuned in a couple weeks as we get to. As we get to uh, the body, which will be a uh, uh, a story set entirely within Castle Rock, um, and then we have a quasi kingism. Um, on page fifty four, Red states that the only roommate Andy ever had was a big Indian named Chief. Now, King loves his pop culture references, and a few years before, um, The Shining's very own Jack Nicholson had starred in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a story involving a silent Native American named Chief. Not only does he drop the drop in this reference, but he also sets up a connective tissue between the two, both being about men trapped behind regimes designed to crush the spirit, both involving the escape of a major character. And that's really all that I have. Um, sorry, my dog um, is insisting that I get her water. Uh, I'm almost done. Okay, can you just calm down? I'm almost done. Um, so then we have... Um, the only thing that's left is is our quote, um, which can be found on page four. I'll be back. I'm going to go uh, feed the beast. So um, I have returned, uh, and, and and the dog is nice and hydrated now. Anyway, so um, the, the quote, uh, I think, um, is a good takeaway from the, the short story, is on page 55. I asked him what's, once what the posters meant to him, and he gave me a peculiar surprise sort of look. Why, they mean the same thing to me as they do most cons, I guess, he said. Freedom. You look at those pretty women and you feel like you could almost, not quite, but almost, step right through and be beside them. Be free. I guess that's why I always liked Raquel Welsh the best. It wasn't just her. It was that beach she was standing on. It looked like she was down in Mexico somewhere, someplace quiet, where a man would be able to hear himself think. Didn't you ever feel that way about a picture, Red? That you could almost step right through it. And I think that that's exactly what he does. Um, and Stephen King, this won't be the, the first time Stephen King uh, plays with the idea of, of stepping through a, a magic door um, doorway. Um, so stay tuned, um, constant reader, because eventually I will get to the drawing of the three. And that's really all that I have uh, to say about uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Stick around next week as I review Frank Darabont's classic feel-good movie, TNT's most popular movie of all time. That would be the Shawshank Redemption. Um, and in the meantime, feel free, as always, to uh, write a review on iTunes and uh, send me your thoughts at um, stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And in the meantime, uh, have a great week. And I'll see you here next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast.